So we're going to start a new series today called Strange Encounters. And, and over the last few years, in the month of October, we've done some interesting series. Uh, October is a weird kind of month because you're not yet to the holiday season. You're kind of in fall, although around here fall is 86 degrees. Like it's a div- weird kind of thing. But everywhere you look, it's about... Um, outside of the church, it's spooky stuff, strange stuff, all right, mysterious stuff. And so over the last two or three years, we've just kind of leaned into that and done something different, a fun series that's different than what we normally do, and that's what we're going to do over the next four weeks. In fact, not this week, but starting next week, for the next two Sundays, I'm going to preach on two passages of Scripture that I have never preached on before. Um, and so, I, I mean, I've been here 14 plus years that at some point you cover a lot right but i'm talking about in my 20 plus years of preaching i have never preached on the two passages of scripture i will preach on next week and the week after that and there's a good reason i haven't because they're weird and i don't understand them fully right next week we're going to talk about a prophet of god calling down bears to kill some youth because they made fun of his baldness and we're going to talk about what that has to do. And then the week after that, we're going to talk about the Nephilim in uh, Genesis that talks about the sons of God and the daughters of men having children. I'm going to tell you right now, I don't have a clue what that's about. I'm studying it. We're, hopefully by the time two weeks from today comes, we'll have something to go forward. But I felt the Lord kind of compel, hey, let's do this. And today we're going to talk about a passage that I haven't talked about a lot because there's just some strange things in there. In fact... I read a quote this week from Frederick Bucher, and you may not know Frederick Bucher, but he's a Christian writer, a very popular Christian writer from about 100 years ago. And he said this about reading the Bible. He says, when a minister reads out of the Bible, I am sure that at least nine times out of ten, the people who happen to be listening at all, at all hear not what is being read, but only what they expect to read or to have read. And I think that what most people expect to hear read from the Bible is a build-up story, an uplifting thought, a moral lesson, something elevating, obvious, and yes, even sometimes boring. So that's often what they hear. Only that is too bad because if you really listen, and maybe if you have to forget that it is the Bible being read and that it is a minister who is reading it, there is no telling what you may hear. And over the next few weeks, what I want us to do is to investigate and hear the Bible as if it is for the first time. And for some of you, there literally may be a couple of these stories that either you have never read before or you don't remember them at all. And so I want you to hear them with fresh ears. And what I want us to see is even in the strangest encounters in the Bible, we can see parts of God's character and his nature And it can help us to understand what he intends for us to do. So here's what I'm going to do to start. I'm going to do something I don't normally do. I'm going to read the entire chapter of Genesis 32. Now, you can follow along if you want to in your Bibles that you have. That'd be great. It's not going to be on the screen. If you don't have a Bible up or or ready to read with me, that's fine. I want you to just listen and hear. Genesis chapter 32. Jacob went on his way, and God's angels met him. When he saw them, Jacob said, This is God's camp, so he called the place Mahanim. And Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the territory of Edom, and he commanded them, You are to say to my lord Esau, This is what your servant Jacob says. 
I have been staying with Laban and have been delayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female slaves. I have sent this message to inform my Lord in order to seek your favor. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau. He is coming to meet you. And he has 400 men with him. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people with him into two camps, along with the flocks, herds, and camels. And he thought, if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, the remaining one can escape. Then Jacob said, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, go back to your land and to your family, and I will cause you to prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. Indeed, I crossed over the Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two camps. Please rescue me from my brother Esau, for I'm afraid of him. Otherwise, he may come and attack me, the mothers, and their children. You have said, God, that I will cause you to prosper, and I will make your offspring like the sand of the sea, too numerous to be counted. He spent the night there and took part of what he had brought with him as a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. He entrusted them to his slaves as separate herds and said to them, Go on ahead of me and leave some distance between the herds. And he told the first one, When my brother Esau asks you, and after he meets, Who do you belong to? Where are you going? And whose animals are these? And he tell him, They belong to your servant Jacob, and they're a gift to our Lord Esau. And look, he is behind us. He told the second one, the third one, and everyone who was walking behind the animals, Say the same thing to Esau when you find him. They're also to say, Look, your servant Jacob is right behind us, for he thought... I want to appease Esau with the gift that is going ahead of me. After that, I can face him and perhaps he will forgive me. So the gift was sent on ahead of him while he remained in the camp that night. And during the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two slave women, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream along with all of his possessions. Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. And he said to Jacob, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked Jacob. He replied, your name will no longer be Jacob. It will be Israel because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob then named the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, he said, yet my life has been spared. The sun shone on him as he passed by Penuel, limping because of his hip. That is why still today the Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle that is the hip socket because he struck Jacob's hip socket at the thigh muscle. A weird way to end the story. And all of God's people said... Amen. All right. So here's the story. It's Jacob, right? A little background you have to have on Jacob. And then we're going to get into the fact that he fought with a man that just appears in the middle of the night who appears to be someone other than just a man. Right? So here's Jacob. Somebody tell me what Jacob's name means. Grasper of the heel, swindler, deceiver, right? So back in that day... People named their kids based on character traits, right? And so let's talk about where Jacob is in the history of Israel. Remember, Abraham is called by God in Genesis 12. Go and I'll make a nation of you. You'll be a blessed nation. You'll be more blessed than you ever have been. He has a son, Isaac, although it goes through kind of crazy things. How old was Abraham when he had Isaac? He was 100 years old, right? 
common age for having children? A hundred? So he has Isaac. Isaac is the son of the blessing, the one that God had promised. He's called Isaac because when God told them at their advanced age that they were going to have a child, Sarah overheard that being described. And what did she do? She laughed, and Isaac's name means laughter. Isaac then had two sons at the same time. We call that twins, right? And who was the first son to come out at that time? Esau. Now, Esau, you might know what Esau means? Red or hairy. So, when he came out, imagine how hairy he had to be or red for his parents to go, you know, that is Esau right there. That is... That is hairy, right? So he's hairy. He's red or hairy. Edom is uh, the Edomites, the land of Edom where he would go and be a part of and help to lead would be, is red. And so there's red clay kind of thing. And so there's some idea that he was a hairy redhead. All right. And then you have Jacob, which means the reason he was named Jacob, if you remember the story, is when Esau comes out of the womb, Jacob is grabbing his heel. So they named him heel grabber, which is Jacob. But in their culture, that meant deceiver or liar. That's a fun name to name your kid, right? Aren't you glad you didn't name your kid that unless you named him James, because that's what James means as well. And so it's from the name Jacob. So that we, I have a son with James as his middle name. All right. And so you have Abraham, Isaac, Esau and Jacob. Now, Jacob would earn his name. Right. He would earn his name because what happened here is Esau was the oldest, which meant he was to get all of the blessing. He was to get a majority of the birthright. And more importantly, spiritually, God said that the Messiah would come, that something would bless the earth from the line of Abraham and Isaac, and it should have been Esau. But here's what happened. Esau was out hunting one day because that's what hairy redheads do. He was out hunting one day and he came in and he was famished. And Jacob, who appeared to me more into Food Network and the cooking channel, was home and had made a stew. And Esau said, I will give you anything for the stew. And Jacob thinks, i got to shoot high to begin with because he'll never take that and then I can work down from there. He says, give me your birthright, which means that when the inheritance time came, he would get double what his brother got. They would switch that. If it's just the two of them, he would go from 33% to 66% and vice versa on the inheritance. And he says to him, I'll tell you what, give me your birthright and I'll give you a bowl of soup. And Esau was a teenager, we think. And he thought, what good, literally he says, what good does my birthright do if I die? He was not about to die. He was just hungry. And so he sacrificed his future for the moment. Now there's a whole sermon there, all right? But that's not where we are today. There are a lot of us that sacrifice our futures for the pleasure of a moment. And so Esau gives his birthright to Jacob and he can't take back. There's no, like, no take backs here. And then that's not enough because still there was a blessing that was to come from the father that the father could uh, not, not reverse that, but he could kind of twinge that a little bit. And so the time comes when Isaac is 
very ill, very old, can no longer see. And Jacob and his mother devise a plan that what they're going to do is that when Esau's out one day and it's time for the blessing, they were going to dress Jacob up in hairy garments and in something that Esau would wear. And they bring him into the dad. And while he's in there, they ask for the blessing. And Isaac blesses Jacob instead of Esau. Esau now has lost the birthright and the blessing, the most in two most important things to the older sibling in that day. He is infuriated and he says, I'm going to let my father die. I'm going to give the family a little time for mourning and then I'm going to kill my brother. So Jacob leaves. He runs. He ends up at a place with a man who himself was a little bit of a deceiver named Laban. And while he's there, he falls in love with this young woman. It literally is some of the sappiest language you can read in the Bible about what he feels about Rachel. And he agrees, this is how much he loves her, he agrees to work seven years for the right to marry her. At the end of seven years, the night comes to marry her. There was a little bit of partying happening. That's what the Bible says. And Laban switched sisters on him. He married not Rachel, the woman that he loved, but Leah, who was described as weak-eyed or weak to the eye. Not attractive. They swap them out, not to Jacob at least. He had his eye on Rachel. And the dad says, oh, I'm sorry, Leah's older. She had to be married first. If you'll work another seven years, you can have Rachel as well. Okay, that's a weird thing too, right? Okay, if you, if you don't think that's weird, we need to have a conversation afterwards. All right. So he is there and he and Laban do not have the best relationship. And at some point... After he's married both women, they've gotten, they've developed this place. They've got a huge amount of people that are there, family and workers and all of that. As soon as all of that happens, God says, it's time to go back to where you came from. There's only one problem. We think it's been about 25 to 30 years. There's one problem with going back to where he came from, and that is Esau is still there. And he realizes that Esau, although he may be a nice man, you don't forgive the birthright and the blessing easily. So this story is about Jacob trying to figure out how to get through Esau without being killed. And one of the first things you need to understand about this story that is not evident when you first read through it is that he tries everything imaginable that he can think of to make it okay. He takes defensive measures, right? Military strategy. I'm going to divide into two camps. That way if he thinks I'm at this camp, he may attack that camp and think he's done and not attack this one. So I'll sacrifice one camp for the other. Okay, if that doesn't work, military measures don't work, you know what else might work? Prayer. I'm going to pray. In fact, this is the first time in Scripture we see Jacob pray. But notice his prayer. There's parts of it that are really good. God, I'm not worthy of what you've given me. 
That's down in verse 10, verse 9. He starts with, hey, you remember Abraham? You remember Isaac? You remember the promises you made to them? Rescue me from my brother? Like, that's, that's normal. Like, I'm at a, a bad place. You promised me that you were going to prosper. You promised that you would take care of me. And so do you see what he does? He, he militarily comes up with a strategy. Hey, I'm going to do this. Spiritually, I'm going to pray to God. That Get me covered there. And then it says, even after he prays to God, he thinks, okay, now I've got to send gifts ahead. He is trying everything he can to not let Esau kill him. Do you see that? In fact, he is really scared about this. Most of the time in Scripture, it doesn't tell us the emotions of people. It just gives us kind of an idea and we're supposed to kind of think or speculate about it. But it tells us here that he was frightened and distressed in verse 8 and 9. That phrase was used for people that were facing defeat or facing death, that were in dire straits. He was frantic. He's, he's doing everything he can. I want you to imagine the most difficult situation you've ever found yourself in and what you did in that moment. And sometimes we will try everything. You know what? I'm going to try this. Yeah, I'm going to pray to God because right now I've got to pray to God. But I'm also going to take this action. I'm going to do this. I'm going to take that. I'm going to talk to that person. I'm going to go to this place. I'm going to get all of this laid out. That's what's happening here with Jacob. He is covering all his bases. He's frenetic in his actions. In fact, we don't have a clue why he's taking his family across the Jabbok and he's by himself and he's going back and forth across across this river. It makes no sense with what's about to happen. All I can figure out by reading it is he is freaking out. And that is a technical term. He is freaked. And his entire life, he has been so good at getting out of situations by using his own cunning, deceiving, and mental ability. And he doesn't have a clue how to do it here. So what do you do when you don't know what to do? Well, God shows up. By the way, I'll give you another little tidbit of knowledge here that may help you understand the story of the wrestling match that's about to happen. Most of us think, as you time it, as you read it out, that Jacob was somewhere around 97 years old at this time. So a young guy, right? And while he's there, I love the way it just nonchalantly says, he took them and sent them across the street in verse 23, along with all of his possessions. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him. Now, let me just ask you a question. What does the word alone mean? It means no one was there except Jacob. What's the next phrase after it says Jacob was left alone? A man wrestled with him. So when you read that and you just are reading along, you have to say to yourself, where did the man come from? Because Jacob was alone, everybody sent away, and a man was there to fight with him. And they wrestled until daybreak. Here's what I know. Very limited experience with wrestling or wrestling in the South. I have very little experience with that. Although when I was growing up in my neighborhood, we did have a person that wrestled as one of the guys that wore a mask and got beat up at the Memphis Wrestling uh, Saturday morning show and then would come mow his yard in the afternoon. And he built us a wrestling ring in our neighborhood. And I was the light heavyweight champion because my brother was the referee and held the guy's arms down and counted three and I got a belt and everything. So I have very little experience with wrestling. 
But here's what I know. It's exhausting. Like the real stuff, like the Greco-Roman wrestling. Like I've done that a little bit too. Just um, I've tried out a little bit. It's exhausting. And it says that this happened until daybreak. Now let's jump to the end of the story. What does the end of the story tell us the identity of the person who is wrestling here is? Who does it say it is? It says that when he named the place, he named it Peniel. I have seen God face to face. Now, this is a place where there is not absolute clarity. The Bible doesn't give us absolute clarity here. But from all of the clues we have around this is some pre-incarnate form of Christ, some form of God in this place is wrestling with Jacob. Now, there are lots of ways that could happen. It could have been a spiritual, emotional moment when God is dealing with Jacob again and again and then at some point physically breaks in to do what he does at the end. The word wrestle there does mean kind of intense combat, but there are those scholars that believe what's happening here is a wrestling with God that happens like many of you may have wrestled with God in the night when something is happening in your life, when there is something happening with your children or your job or a situation in your marriage or a place where you don't know where to go and you cannot sleep at night. You toss and you turn and you spend time with the Lord and you feel like in the morning you have awakened wrestling. There's some of that. I'm not saying that it's not a real wrestling. I'm saying that it would have been more than just a physical, hey, two guys squaring off here. It is this idea that God is striving with Jacob. And what Jacob doesn't realize is that this is a metaphor for his entire life. That his entire life he has strived and worked against his brother. He has strived. He has worked against his dad. He has strived. He has worked against his father-in-law. He has strived and he has worked against God. He has wrestled his whole life trying to do it on his own. I mentioned that this is the first chapter we see Jacob praying. And while I think the prayer is sincere, it was part of an overall strategy to protect himself on every side and cover all the bases. And in this moment, he is wrestling with God Almighty who is trying to get him to a place of surrender. And what we see in this passage is three things that are vital for us to understand the character of God and how we respond to it. The first thing we see in this passage is that God breaks Jacob. He literally dislocated his hip. He hurt his hip and to the point that he had a limp the rest of his life, apparently. He struggles with him. He wrestles with him. He tries to get him. And he sees that he is not going to give in. The man is not going to give in. And so he breaks him. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God. If you've never read Knowing God, highly recommend Knowing God by J.I. Packer. It's a life-altering book. But in the midst of it, he talks about this instance. And he says, that night as Jacob stood alone by the river Jabbok, God met him. There were hours of desperate, agonized conflict, spiritual, and as it seemed of Jacob, physical also. 
Jacob had hold of God. He wanted a blessing, an assurance of divine favor, and a protection in this crisis. But he could not get what he sought. Instead, he grew ever more conscious of his own state, utterly helpless, and without God, utterly hopeless. He felt the full bitterness of his unscrupulous, cynical ways now coming home to roost. He had hitherto been self-reliant, believing himself to be more than a match for anything that might come. But now he felt his complete inability to handle things and knew with blinding, blazing certainty that never again dare he trust himself to look after himself and to carve out his destiny. Never again dare he try to live by his wits. The nature of Jacob's prevailing with God was simply that he held on to God while God weakened him and wrought in him the spirit of submission and self-distrust. And he had desired God's blessing so much that he clung to God through all the painful humbling till he came low enough for God to raise him up by speaking peace to him and assuring him that he need not fear Esau anymore. He wrestled with God and God broke him. And how do we know God broke him? How do we know he finally came to that place of submission? It's a thing you'll miss if you're not careful because it just seems so matter of fact. He says, what is your name? The man asked. And he replied, Jacob. Everywhere I looked, everything that I looked at this week told me that that is a significant moment in the life of this man because in that moment he was not only declaring simply his name he was declaring the reality of who he is as the deceiver as the liar as the guy that tried to make it on his own he says i am deceiver supplanter liar In that moment, not only does God break Jacob, but Jacob confesses who he is apart from God. He is the one that tries to make a way, but cannot make a way. There have been a couple of songs that have come out in recent years. One we sang today, Waymaker, Miracle Worker. God, you are the one. That is working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. God, you are the one that makes a way. There's a new song, a newer song out that basically just says it's the chorus. God, you're going to make a way. I don't know how you're going to make a way, but I know you will. There are too many of us that are not willing to do what Jacob did right here, which is to confess to the Lord who we are in our weakness and say, I have been trying to make this work on my own, and I realize now that I am not the way maker that you are. And I don't know how you're going to make a way, but I know you will. And that's what happens with Jacob as he wrestles with God. He comes to that place where he finally gives in and says, Lord, my name is deceiver and then right in the midst of that God renames Jacob your name will no longer be Jacob he says in verse 28 it will be Israel by the way the name Israel means God fights it can mean God fights with it can mean God fights for In this case, I think it's a reference to both. That the one with whom God has fought, God will now fight for. Israel is the leader of the nation that will bring about 
the glory of God being spread upon the earth and the Messiah and Savior who would come and die for our sins. God fights for us. And the name that God gives to Jacob is no longer deceiver. It is no longer one who swindles. It is the one with whom and through whom and for whom God fights. It's a weird story, it seems. Especially if you just take it at face value. The image of God in human form wrestling like we think of wrestling with a man. And yet, the spiritual significance of it is not lost or should not be lost on any of us. Coming out of the story, we can do three things that can completely change how we approach life. And the first thing is to surrender to God. Completely. I just feel the Lord in today as I was preparing this message, as I was going over it again this morning, as I was praying about it backstage, just thinking about this moment, I feel the Lord laying on my heart that there are people here today, and it may be you in particular, but there are people in this room right now, people watching online that have been struggling and fighting and trying to make a way on your own through a problem, through a difficulty, through an illness, through a relationship, and it is not working. And you have tried and tried and tried. You are struggling and struggling and struggling. You have fought for longer than a night, and God is calling you to just simply surrender. And in the midst of that, you can trust that God is there and that He is going to work. It may not be in the way you expect. I don't think if you would ask Jacob, how will I receive assurance that Esau is going to be okay with me? His answer would have been a dislocated hip after a wrestling match with God. But God works. And for many of us, we're trying to figure out life. This new reality that has come post-pandemic in church life, new reality post-pandemic in school life, new reality post-pandemic in business life and work life and all of that. We're trying to figure all of that out. And for most of us, we have done 100% of the figuring out without surrendering first to God. And some of you have relationships. You've got something going on with your kids and you don't know how to deal with that. You've got something going on with your parents. You're not sure how to handle that. And you've tried and you've tried and you've tried and you've tried. You've read books and you've gone to seminars and you've watched things online and you try to figure it out. And you've got things happening at work. You've got things happening in your career. You've got things happening in life. You're trying to figure out what life has for you in the future. And you've tried and you've tried. And in this moment, God says, quit striving and submit. Psalm 46 says, be still and know that I am God. The better translation is that quit trying and know that I'm God. Trust in me. We surrender to God. Secondly, we admit who we are apart from Christ. That we are hopeless and helpless and weak without Christ. No matter how strong we think we may be, without Christ we are nothing. And we admit that, we confess that, we say to the Lord, this is who I am in my own strength, and it is not good enough. But the last thing, and then we're done, and this is so important for so many of you in this room, we need to accept 
our God-given identity. For those of us that are believers in Jesus Christ, yes, we need to understand who we are in ourselves, in and of ourselves without God. But we also must realize that if Jesus Christ has saved us, we have a new name. In fact, we don't know that name now. There's a passage in the Revelation that I love that says that all of us will have a name that is known only to us and to Him. And it is a name that describes who we are. It is a character name. God has already given us that name, but more than that, He has declared Himself over us. And we are redeemed. We are saved. We are pure. We are righteous. We are right with Him. We are chosen and are used by the Lord. We are His instruments and His tools. We are His temple on this earth. We are the ones that are to spread His fame. We are God's people for whom and through whom He fights. He must come to this place That we surrender whatever we're trying to do to fix the situations in our life. We admit that we can't do it on our own. And then we live in and through the identity that God has given us. Right now on Wednesday nights we're walking through the book of Ephesians slowly about ten verses at a time. And we're this Wednesday looking at the first uh, verses of chapter 3. But the entire first three chapters are all about this is who you are. You are blessed above all that you are seated in the heavenlies because of who God is, because of what He has done. He has saved you. He is sanctifying you. He is redeeming you. He will glorify you. You will spend eternity with Him. You have an inheritance that you cannot imagine. We are blessed. And He is enough. And the message that he wanted Jacob to realize is, yes, I promised you I would protect you and your line, and I will, but not because of who you are, but because of who I am. And we can trust the same for us. So my question to you this morning is, what are you struggling with that you can't seem to get an answer for or a breakthrough with? Are you willing to surrender it to the Lord to admit who you are and trust in your God-given identity and Him to do it? We're going to sing about the need that we have for the Lord, and that is true every moment of every day. But the Lord wants to use us. And as we admit our need for Him, He will use us for His glory. I'm going to pray, and when I finish praying, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. We're going to have a time of response. Julio's going to come and lead us again as we sing about our need for the Lord. And I would just ask you to do whatever the Lord leads you to do to respond in that way. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the opportunity we have. the gracious opportunity we have to see ourselves in the light that you see us, in the way that you see us. And give us, Lord, an opportunity to understand what that means. Like Psalm 139 says, Lord, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is anything offensive in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, we pray that you would search us in this moment. 
Lord, maybe you would reveal to us places in our lives that we are trying and striving and working as hard as we can to get things right, Lord. And yet you are saying just simply surrender. Let me use you. But I pray if there's one here today that does not know you as their Savior, Lord, that you would make them realize that today is the day. Do you make them uncomfortable, Lord? That you would help them to understand that you would give them the courage to come forward and to ask about that? Lord, that they would ultimately surrender their lives to you. And I pray for people all across this room. I just sense there's so many people striving, working so hard to try to solve an issue. Lord, that you've called them just to surrender to you. And so Lord, I pray that in this moment, you would give them the courage and the security to surrender. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.